Amen. 180, turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians. Turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians, and we are going to be in the end of chapter 3, and we'll even dip a little bit into chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 18 in chapter 3 through verse 1 of chapter 4. 3.18 through 4.1 this morning. It's been a joy to walk through this book. If you've been following along with us or uh, if you needed a quick refresher, this book is all about the supremacy of Jesus, of how worthy Jesus is and how worthy is of all of our affection and devotion. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. And we've come to the point in this letter that we ask ourselves, If this is true of Jesus, what should be true of me? If it's true that Jesus is far above all things, that Jesus is supreme over all things, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is worthy of all worship and praise and adoration, if that's true, what should be true of me? We've begun to discuss that a little bit through assessing the attitudes and the new life that is born out of a heart that has been bought by Jesus, a heart that has been pricked by grace. It bleeds a certain way. It it has a different rhythm. It looks different than what you used to. Old sinful habits have to die, and a new way of life has to come in. And if you were with us last week, We talked about there being certain priorities, inner attitudes, an inward way of being that then results in new life for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, a willingness to bear with one another, a willingness to forgive one another. And all of this possible because you're someone who's rooted to the word of Christ, You're rooted in the peace you found in Christ. And you're rooted your life in that everything that you would do would be to the glory of Jesus. And you get to the end of all of that and you can ask yourself the question, so what? What does that actually look like? How does that actually manifest itself in our lives? How should that change me? Well, Paul is going to get very specific here. And these conversations we've had about a new self, a new life, new inward attitudes, a new inner disposition, it's going to bear itself out in a very particular way. That's what we're going to see here in Colossians 3.18 going through 4.1. And let me read God's word for us. It reads, Wives... Submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be in your word. We do pray that you would help us to understand it and to recognize how it is that your word transforms us, transforms our lives, so that in the present, not only would we love you and long for you, but we would live for you. Help us to be exactly what you are making us to be in Christ, and nothing less. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are asking that question in light of new life in Christ, because Jesus is supreme and worthy, and we're called to follow him, what should our lives look like? And I think when we think, when we think about what our life should look like in light of Jesus, we begin to have a lot of good ideas. There's a lot of things that you can do for Jesus in light of new life in him. You could become a pastor. You could lead a Bible study. You could lead a small group. You could serve in the nursery. You could serve in what used to be Awana and now is Adventure Club. As you grow up, you begin to serve in a ministry like this. You serve in a high school ministry or a junior high ministry. Or maybe your heart is... uh, move to consider something even a little broader than that, and you think of missions. And you think of, how can I be a man or woman of Christ who goes out to the nations and declares to the world the goodness of God in his son, Jesus? There's many ways that you can serve Christ. There's many ways that you can demonstrate new life in Christ and give your life to God in a way that would be worthy. And yet Paul, as he considers new life in Jesus, Paul doesn't think of many extraordinary things that will help you demonstrate to God that you love him. Paul doesn't think of many different ministries that you can be a part of that will demonstrate to God that you truly have been made new in him. Paul, if anything, goes to the very ordinary things of life. Because if you can't demonstrate to God in the ordinary that you love him, how should we expect you to demonstrate it in the extraordinary? And so Paul, he actually fixes our gaze on things that are pretty normal, very standard. This isn't anything crazy. This isn't rocket science. This isn't anything outlandish. This isn't anything as many like to talk about it in the church, radical And yet at the same time, it's necessary. Paul comes in with a message that says, do you want to show the world that you've truly been made new? Be a good wife. Be a good husband. Be a good child. 
be a good parent, be a good worker, be a good boss. It's not anything out of the ordinary. It's not anything outlandish. And it's not often the way we think of how we commit our life to Christ. And yet we want to see this morning, stretching into this afternoon, that new life in Christ takes on very ordinary means. That you don't need to prove to God your love for him by means of doing all kinds of radical things. You can prove to God you love him by living in the moment, in the present, in the way that would honor him. And God has told us exactly what that would look like. And so we'll break down this passage into three different sections. One, we're going to see wisdom for the marriage, wisdom for marriage. Two, we'll see wisdom for family. And three, we'll see wisdom for work. Marriage, family, and work. The most basic tenets of life. Something that all of us will likely be a part of someday in our life or will strive toward or will get to. These are the very basic principles of life. And it's in these basic principles, in these basic moments, that God desires for you to shine brightest for him. We begin with wisdom for marriage. Many of you are thinking this will have nothing to do with me. Don't worry. I will make sure it doesn't. Verse 18 begins this section with, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The first step that Paul takes in declaring what a new life in Jesus should look like. What does it look like if you're living this kind of life that has the word of Christ dwelling richly in you? If you have peace with God and you have peace with one another in Jesus, if in everything that you do, word or deed, you do it to the name of the Lord Jesus, what's the most basic and primary way that you can demonstrate that? It's wives and husbands being who they should be, living in a way that would honor God. And we begin here in verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It doesn't take a lot to recognize this is a message that's not common in our day. Ladies, you are living in a world that is filled with uh, messages and uh, an angle of life, a lens of life that tells you to express yourself, be yourself, be free, be independent, do what you want, and don't let anybody tell you what to do. I would agree. You should stop listening to anybody, and you should probably start listening to God. That's exactly where I would start that conversation. And God describes marriage in this way. He wants wives to submit to their husbands. And that doesn't mean that the wife is a, a doormat. If anything, it means she's a pillar. Uh, you would recognize it in Roman architecture. It's all beautiful and huge and pristine, and it's, it's got a nobility to it, and it looks nice, but you recognize those pillars the moment you walk into uh, something that mimics Roman or Greek architecture. And those pillars are there to do one thing and one thing only, and that's to support the rest of the building. 
And if they aren't there, the whole thing collapses. And the same is true of marriage. A wife is meant to support her husband. She is meant to submit to her husband or else the relationship crumbles. She is not a doormat by any means. In fact, that's not how God intended it to be. You remember back in the garden when God created man, it wasn't good that he should be alone. And the poor guy was so depressed. He saw every animal that God had made. Not only that, he named them. And not only that, he saw that they all had a partner. And there he was sitting by himself playing Super Mario Brothers, doing absolutely nothing, wondering, where is someone like me? Where is someone for me? And God, God is so good that God said, it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. That's what it means to be a wife. God, in that first and blessed marriage between Adam and Eve, he brings in a woman who is suitable to him. Another way of saying that would actually be appropriate for him. She was someone who fit him. It's not about compatibility, and everyone in this room tends to think the opposite on that. You know, when you start liking a girl or you start liking a guy, you think, well, they need to be like me. That's only one problem with that. A marriage where there was two people like Esaias would be disastrous for me and for all of you. (laughs) Instead, you need someone who compliments you, someone who fits in the gaps, someone who takes care of those things that you're weak in and vice versa. And woman was made in that very way. She was made to complement Adam, and in some ways even we can say to complete him. And in order to do that well, she is called to submit to her husband. Why? Because this is fitting in the Lord. Submission for a woman in marriage, it isn't that you obey your husband. Kids do that. Submission in a marriage is that you obey God. It's not that you walk around and you're some kind of pet in the home that does everything your master tells you. That's not the relationship God has designed. And be it the message the world tries to give you, it's because they don't love God and they don't love his word and they don't understand his ways that they promote it in that way. That's not the way of submission that God is talking about. A passage that Develop this, uh, develops this concept a little more fully is in Ephesians chapter 5. Here too, verse 22, Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A woman who enters, enters into marriage, a wife in relationship with her husband, if she wants to look anything at all like Christ, she will submit. Doesn't mean she's walked over. It doesn't mean that she's uh, being told what to do at every waking hour of the day, that if her husband says she can go out, then she can go out. If her husband says she can get her hair done, then she can get her hair done. That's not the point of submission. Point of submission is, I recognize my role on this team. 
I know how God has designed life to work, and I want to walk in God's will, not my own. I want my marriage to mimic and reflect and look like the way God designed marriage to look like, not the way I want marriage to look like. One of the greatest women of God that I can think of, Elizabeth Elliot, she wrestled with these truths and is very helpful in thinking about them. Elizabeth was uh, really, we can think of her as a theologian. She was a blessing to the church for many years, and uh, she's very akin to the idea of marriage, for several of her husbands died, and she remarried uh, several times, and throughout, she lived her life seeking to please God in this way. And she writes these words, a wife is to submit herself to her husband. The husband's rank is given to him by God, as the angels and animals' ranks are also assigned to them, not chosen or earned. The mature man acknowledges that he did not earn or deserve his place by superior intelligence, virtue, strength, or amiability. It's a big word, but we don't need to touch on it right now. And then she says this, the mature woman acknowledges that submission is to the will of God for her, and obedience to this will is no more a sign of weakness in her than it was in the Son of Man when he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. To be a submissive wife is to be a God-honoring wife. It's to be the kind of woman, not that everyone else wants you to be or that you think you should be, but the kind of woman that God desires you to be because it's fitting in the Lord. Now there's a twofold relationship here. And so where wives are called to submit and to follow the lead of their own husband, and that's truly the other point that we can make here. Wives aren't called to submit to men. They're called to submit to their husbands. And so women, one day you will will be called to submit, but not just to anyone, but to that man. So you should pick a good one. In the same way, husbands are called to much as well. And husbands are called to love their wives and not to be harsh with them. And so a God-honoring life, a new life in Jesus, it begins in the home, it begins with a marriage, wives submitting to their husbands, because this, re- this reflects a love for God and obedience to the Lord. But second, a husband who loves his wife. And you could ask yourself, why these two things? Wouldn't a wife also need to love her husband? And doesn't a husband ever need to submit to his wife? Absolutely. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, the verses we read this morning, it actually tells us this, 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a mutual submission that happens. There's even a mutual love that occurs. But God knows us and knows what we need most, and a husband more than anything needs a wife's respect, and a wife more than anything needs a husband's love. And that is why in verse 19, Paul writes, Husband, love your wives. Because that's the way this message tends to go. The minute you tell a wife, hey, your role is to submit to your husband, a man turns around and begins to puff up his chest, and he says, go make me a sandwich. And that might sound funny. It might seem funny, but it's loveless. 
to think of your relationship to other women or to think of your relationship one day as a husband with another woman in those terms is to completely misidentify your role in it. And so men, you are called to one day be a husband who will love your wife. You are called to lead, but if you lead without love, you've ruined the whole thing. Husbands, love your wives. How can we identify the kind of love that that is? Well, again, we would turn back to Ephesians 5. Here, Paul rounds out and gives a fuller picture of what this looks like. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that tell us? Husbands, if you're to love your wife, you are to die to self. How much did Jesus love us? He gave his life for us. And so husbands, they have a call to love their wives in the very same way. Verse 26 of Ephesians 5, that he may sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Ladies call that a spa day. That she might be holy and without blemish, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife also loves himself. What an interesting way for Paul to put it. The point is very simple. Husbands do not have a preoccupation with themselves. Husbands don't even have a preoccupation with what they want. And so what a beautiful relationship that begins to form where a wife is called to submit to a man who loves her to the uttermost. That's the relationship that a marriage is meant to build. And now this is the point where all of you go, and so what does this mean for me? I don't care. I'm not married. But you will be someday, I would guess. Many of you want to be someday. But here's the thing. Many of you think that one day you'll be able to flip a switch and you'll be able to be a God-honoring wife who submits to her husband just because on that day, it'll just come to you. You'll just figure it out. And guys in the room, you've been treating women like trash and you think that one day you'll find a woman who you'll love and you'll treat her like she's a treasure. Nothing could be further from the truth. The kind of woman who makes an excellent wife And the kind of man who makes an excellent husband needs to work at it in the present. If you are going to be the kind of husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church, then you better be like Jesus now. Prepare yourself. Ready yourself to be the kind of man who is worthy of a wife's submission. Not the kind of guy who will lord it over her. Not the kind of guy who always has to ask her to submit. That's not how being a husband works. In fact, you can recognize that. He doesn't say, here, submit to your husbands if he loves you. He doesn't say, love your wife if she submits to you. You have a role to play. And you get to prepare for that now. Women, live a life in the present that isn't preoccupied with your hopes and dreams, but's preoccupied with God's glory. Absolutely, there's many things that you can do to the glory of God. If you don't got a husband yet, absolutely, go to college. 
Get a degree. Find a job. It's irrelevant. All of that's great. But the moment that you commit to this union someday with a man, do it the way that God has asked you to. Do it the way that God has told you to. And men, the same goes for you. If you're going to be this kind of husband one day, you can't be preoccupied now with you. Show yourself to be someone who cares for others, who loves others, who isn't short-tempered, who doesn't lash out, who isn't angry, someone who is compassionate and kind, and someone who is loyal. This is the kind of home, this is the kind of marriage that God builds. Ask anyone in this room who is married. You've got several staff around you that are married and are in a relationship just like this. And they'll all tell you the same thing. These things are difficult. But because God has ordained them, and because those committed to it trust in Him, they are possible. This kind of marriage will call for plenty of trust and plenty of dependency on the Spirit of God. And in that, wives submit to their husbands, and husbands love their wives. That's the first thing that Paul points to as life that's been given in Christ. That's the first thing Paul points to as new life on God's terms. And secondly here, Paul gives wisdom for the family. And so wisdom for a marriage is wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A harshness and love cannot go together. And secondly, Paul gives wisdom for the family. And this is the part where you really have to tune in because you're here now. Verse 20 reads, Children, obey your parents when you feel like it. In some things. Children, obey your parents when you think they're right. Children, obey your parents when you think it's a good time to. Children, obey your parents when you feel like they've earned your obedience. You know I'm being foolish. It doesn't say that at all. Children, obey your parents in everything. In everything. For this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become encouraged. Uh, There's two means here that Paul uses to give wisdom into a family, and it looks very clearly at a parent-child dynamic. You in this moment as a teenager find yourself in limbo or purgatory. You think that because you're within that 13 to 18 demographic, you no longer fit that description of child. I am potty trained. I know how to tie my shoes. I have a little bit of money and I spend it on hot Cheetos. I know how to get dressed in the morning. In fact, I keep myself clean and I do so not to offend others with my scent. I'm grown. I'm bigger now. You've even already undergone the awkwardness of junior high. So you've made it through such trials as that, and you've come out the other side knowing everything. 
Well, there's a word for you here. Children, it's not just a term meant to describe Nemo. It's a term meant to describe you living in your parents' house. It's a a term to describe the relationship that you have with your parents when you completely depend on them for everything. And, And I'm pretty certain that that means you. It doesn't negate the fact that you've learned a lot throughout life. It doesn't negate the fact that you're wiser now, you're older now, you can do things on your own now. Praise God for that, because if we had to tie your shoes in this ministry, I'd get sick of it. We're grateful that you're grown. We're grateful that you're maturing. We're grateful that you're growing up. But you live under your parents' house. And so long as you do, children, you are called to obey your parents. In what? Not the things you feel like, not the things you think they're right on, not the things you think deserve your obedience, not when you feel like they deserve your obedience, not when you choose to obey, but in everything. What your parents say goes. If you want a picture of it, you can look in the book of Luke. There's a kid there who I think could help us. His name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus' parents on this great adventure to go worship the Lord, they lose the child Jesus. And he's gone and they go looking for him and they're trying to find him and they don't know where he is. Eventually they're led to the temple and Mary comes up to Jesus and she says, uh, you know, where, where have you been? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress Jesus, Luke 2, 49 says, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? He wasn't talking back. He wasn't giving lip. You know, he wasn't being disrespectful. And yet verse 50 then reads, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Because he's God. He's wise. Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This was the life of Jesus. Presumably there as a 12-year-old, maybe 13-year-old boy, like some of you, especially the 13 part. A a boy just like us, a man, a, a human just like us, who with his parents understood that the relationship he had was one of obedience, submission, in everything that they said, honoring them. Friends, this is a word for you. You don't get to pick and choose when you obey your parents. There isn't a questionnaire or a survey coming out by which you get to give feedback on, you know, these items, I really do appreciate how you lead me here, but but over here, I'm pretty good, I'm on my own, and I know what to do. No, your parents have been ushered in by God to guide you and lead you and to give you wisdom so that when you're on your own, you know what to do. I know in the present that could be very difficult. You know so much. You're so wise. You've got it so put together. Listen, let me help you. Take whatever help you can get while you have it. Your parents will not have that obligation or that responsibility, or that weight on their shoulders forever. 
One day you'll grow up and you'll be expected to go and do something with your life. And the person who's going to get it right more often than not is the person who knew how to obey their parents. If you want proof of it, you can recognize that when God first gave his commandments, the only that came with a promise was that of honoring your father and your mother. Accompanied with it was a long and blessed life. You want your life to pan out. You want your life to get somewhere. You want your life to mean something. Honor and obey your parents. So many of you in this room, I don't know where your relationship with your parents are, but so many of you, you want to serve in ShepCon. You want to do an STM. You want to serve at VBS. You want to graduate and you want to be on games crew and you want to come to regen and you want to do a bunch of really cool things for Jesus. Here's the best thing you can do right now. Obey your parents. It's not flashy, but it is right. Someone who's given to obedience of their parents demonstrates that they have a heart not only for understanding the relationship between them and their parents, but between them and the Lord. God has given you parents so that you might obey them. And when you do, you are pleasing to him. Now, in these relationships, we recognize there's always that two-way street. So children, obey your parents. And Paul smooths over that relationship by giving the other side of the coin. You are called to obey your parents. Verse 21, fathers. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, that's a big one, and if you don't understand this rightly, I'm afraid that you will go home today, and you'll call out every little thing your parents have done. So I'm going to try to explain it well. I'll do it by means of this. Your mom and your dad are imperfect. They're not perfect people. They're sinners just like us. They oftentimes get it wrong. They have a huge responsibility. And that responsibility involves keeping you alive and making sure you know what to do once you're on your own. You haven't gotten there yet. You don't know what that's like yet. But that is a difficult job, I would know, with four kids under the age of six We just all feel like we're going to die any any moment now. I mean, I might as well just let Ezra drive our car. I don't know what to do anymore. It's nuts. And it's a huge responsibility. And because of it, we often don't get it right. And, And Paul knows that. That's why he encourages parents in this way. It's a tall task. It's a difficult task. It's a stressful task even. And in the midst of all of that, Paul says, Fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't push them past their own limits. Don't anger them. Don't discourage them. Don't be harsh with them. There's a million ways that a child's heart could be provoked. This is the parent who, the minute you say something that sounds a little off, they think that you are the most disrespectful person that's ever walked the earth. The minute you try to explain yourself, they say, you need to listen to me. I'm, I'm mom. You're a kid. Be quiet. This could be the parent who, the moment you try something new, they say you're not ready for it. 
The moment you're giving something, everything that you have, they don't think that you can actually do it. There is a million ways that a parent can provoke their child. And you see what it leads to, and so does Paul. It leads to discouragement. Maybe it leads to you being quiet with your parents. Maybe it leads to you distrusting, distrusting your parents. Maybe it leads to you having animosity towards your parents. Maybe it leads to you thinking bad thoughts about your parents, saying bad things to your friends about your parents. Maybe it leads to you uh, feeling like your parents have to be the worst parents in the world. I know because everyone else's parents do it so differently. Listen, this would be a call to your parents to be better, absolutely. But to you, it's a call to be gracious with your parents. They will fail many times, but their goal is born out of love for you, or at least it should be. Their goal in Christ, if you have godly parents, is to raise you up in a way that would instruct you in the fear of the Lord. And in doing that, they will try their hardest, even if it means that sometimes they're getting it wrong. Have you ever got it wrong? Yeah. In the same way that you would expect or desire or long for your parents to forgive you when you're wrong, forgive them when they're wrong. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. If that's you, if you've been discouraged by your parents, then this text gives us an opportunity to do the very thing that Christ has done for us. Forgive. Maybe what you need to do is forgive your parent and maybe open that conversation with them. It's not hard. You're not trying to give them your opinion. You're not trying to tell them what to do. Open up your Bible. Show them in the text, I understand my responsibility, and I also see yours, and I would like to work at this together in a way that would please Jesus. But I'll tell you the worst thing you can do, give up on your parents. They are giving it their all for you. You likewise should give your all to them. This is how God made it. I recognize that some in this room may be without a parent or both parents. And in that kind of a context, life is made so difficult. In fact, we can recognize that throughout this passage. A broken home is a wounded home, and it leads to many scars. And so we recognize very clearly God has given a a clear perspective, a clear prescription even on what the family should look like. A wife, a husband, and their children. And where that home looks to honor the Lord, blessing is close at hand. Those things aren't always possible for everyone. And the beautiful thing we recognize in that is that we truly have Christ and his church to come alongside anyone who might be hurting in these areas. That being said, children, obey your parents in everything. And recognize your parents are imperfect people. So we've seen wisdom for marriage. We've seen wisdom for family. Lastly, let's see wisdom for work. Wisdom for work. We begin this final section in verse 22. Bond servants, 
Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong is done, and there's no partiality. So to masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven." Now, you'll notice that as we work our way from the home outward, husbands and wives have a particular relationship. Uh, Children and parents have a particular relationship. And now Paul steps outside of that to think of the relationship that exists in the world. And he talks about their economy in their day very clearly. And it oftentimes is very jarring for us. Bond servants. Or maybe your translation says slave. And that translation would be right. It's talking about the relationship between slaves and masters. And I want you to notice something very particularly. Paul doesn't come in with an agenda to take down the economy of slavery. It's not his point, right? And the Bible Bible neither condones or approves of slavery. It just kind of is what it is. If anything, what Paul says is, if this is the context by which you exist, then in that context you can live for Christ. That's the beauty of being given new life in Jesus. New life in Jesus isn't going to mean that your circumstances need to change before you can live for Christ. Being given new life in Jesus doesn't mean, you know what, when you get out of that hole and you finally are on over here, that's when you can start living for Jesus. That's not how it works. If anything, Paul's message is, are you a slave in this society? Be the most Christ-like, God-honoring, made new slave that you can possibly be. When slave and master both committed their hearts towards Christ, we began to see its effect. And it's a hard conversation to have because as we talk about it in life of Colossae, you think about our history in this country and all the things that came from it, how heinous it was, how evil it was. This was a very different context, a very different time. But I hope you recognize that those very things are no longer in the present because Christians had something to do with it. If it weren't for the love of Christ, both in master and slave, those things would not have gone away. And yet that is not Paul's preoccupation. Paul's desire in this text isn't to uproot the system. It's to uproot the person. It isn't to change policies. It's to change hearts. It isn't to change the institution. It's to change you. And listen, I'm sure you've dealt with this day in and day out. We live in a day and age where we're told if we cry long enough about it, if we yell long enough about it, if we tear down enough buildings about it, we'll finally get what we want. You as a Christian have a different obligation. In whatever season you find yourself in life, 
in whatever station you find yourself in life, whether it be child, whether it be student, whether it be worker, whether it be CEO, whether it be mother or father or wife or husband, in whatever season you are in, God calls you to be the greatest Christian there. The world changes most when you're a Christian in the present. That's what Paul has to say. And here he reminds us of that in verse 22, beginning with bondservants. What should be the role of a slave then in this economy? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. That would be incredibly countercultural, wouldn't it? Obey in everything your earthly masters. Insofar as we relate to each other the way that God has called us to, we have assurance that we understand God who called us. Obey in everything, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. The picture that Paul is portraying here is God isn't pleased with work that's done because it's going to be seen. God's pleased with work that's done because it's sincere. And this stretches to any economy. This isn't our context anymore, but listen, we live in a world that's very similar. You're going to get a job someday and you're going to work for someone. And I can guarantee you from right now, you won't get to do whatever you want in that job if you want to keep it. You have to do what someone else says. And God has established authority in a way to help us learn how to submit to him. And a Christian, someone who loves God, someone who's been made new by Jesus, they're not the kind of worker that only works because the boss is checking in. They're not the kind of student that only studies because mom is asking you to. They're not the kind of person that is only going to commit to doing things when everyone else has finally caught on to them. In spite of where everyone else's eyes might be, a Christian recognizes God is watching at all times. And so I will work with everything that I have because ultimately I'm working unto him. Not by way of eye service, not just when others are watching, not just when a performance review is around the corner, not just because I have to cram for that test tonight because it's coming up tomorrow morning, not as a people pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Why? Because whatever we do, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That's the key. What if in everything that you did, you committed to doing it because it wasn't reflective of how others will think of you, but it's reflective of your relationship with Jesus? What if you were committed to being the hardest worker, not to outdo everyone else, not to be given the better grade than everyone else, not because it'll make you look good in front of everyone else. What if you committed to being excellent because God is excellent? That's the point that Paul is making for us here. A Christian should be the most excellent student. A Christian should be the most excellent athlete. A Christian should be the most excellent employee. A Christian should be the most excellent whatever he or she is because God is the most excellent one of all. That's what Paul is calling you to. 
He says it so clearly here at the end of verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. And when you do, you recognize everything you put into life in the present. If you do it to his glory and honor, as verse 24 puts it, you know that you will receive from him the inheritance that is your reward. And so you recognize you're working towards something different than everyone else. It's not about a grade. It's not about a paycheck. It's not about a trophy. It's not about accolades. It's not about prestige. It's not about promotion. You work because it honors God. And you work unto God because one day God will repay you, not because of you, but because of his son. An undeserved inheritance is awaiting you. And you don't work for it to earn it. You work for it because it's already guaranteed to you in Christ. This two-way street finds its match in that Paul then turns his attention to masters. The bondservant is to give his labor freely to his earthly master because he's working unto the Lord. He has no room to grow lazy or to, uh, to give less effort into his work. In fact, verse 25 makes that clear. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done. There's no partiality. In other words, Paul is saying if you think that uh, because of Jesus it's an opportunity for you to give less and do less and disrespect the authority that exists above you in the world, you've got it all wrong and you'll get what's coming to you. But it takes its full form here with this verse in chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is what transforms societies as a whole. It isn't that we try to uproot the institution or the systems, though we can do that. It's that when bondservant and master come together in the name of Jesus, we recognize none of us is better than the other. We recognize because Jesus loves both slave and master, each of us now owes each other that love. Because love has come to slave and master, now I will not degrade or defame or uh, abuse another person in any way. And so the slave will not grow lazy in his work and the master will not grow harsh in his position. That has changed societies as a whole. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly. Why? Because you know you will give account to your master. Anyone who's ever been given a position of authority needs to recognize there is one who has granted it. And so a master called to treat their servants, their bondservant, their slave, justly and fairly. Why? Because there is a true master of all. He is the one in heaven. And it's because God is master of all through his son, Jesus Christ, that each of us has an obligation to live up to the standards given to us here. If you have an issue with anything that's written here by Paul, you don't have an issue with me. You you don't have an issue with someone else. You have an issue with the master. You have an issue with God. You have an authority issue. 
You have a problem with knowing that you're not at the center of the universe. You're not the person that knows the most. You're not the wisest being that's ever existed, and God is. That is your biggest problem. And that might be true of some of you here today. The reason you think a marriage looks so difficult is because you don't trust God to be wiser and to know more than you do. You don't think God is worth listening to. The reason your relationship with your parents is so difficult, it's not because obedience is hard, it's because you know better than they do, and surely you know better than God does. The reason you can't forgive your parents and have a little bit of grace with them, it's not because you haven't been forgiven, but it's because you forget that so often, and you forget that the one who has forgiven you has commanded you likewise to forgive others. And the reason that you'll struggle your whole life with anyone who has an ounce of authority in your life will be because you first and foremost cannot submit to the authority of God who is in heaven. If that's you, your life will be a struggle every day that you live. God has made it so that when you recognize that he and he alone is sovereign over life and death, and he and he alone defines who you are, be you a a wife or a husband, a child, a father, a servant, or a master. When you recognize this, and you recognize this in the face and the glory of Jesus Christ, then and only then are you free to live. That's Paul's message for us this morning. Each of us has a responsibility in whatever station of life we're in, whether it's somewhere you're going or it's where you're at right now. And the only way that this kind of life will be possible to you is that you would have been made new by the grace of Christ. If you want life to look this way and you want to live in this way, in a manner that will bring you great joy and peace and hope, give your life to Christ. And if you've already given your life to Christ, then recognize this isn't some kind of suggestion box by which God says, hey, try these things and see if they work for you. This is the way of life for God's people. And a new heart will commit to this kind of new life. Pray with me. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We recognize its truth and we want to live by it. We pray that you would help us to do so in the power of your spirit. Thank you for the grace that's been afforded to us in Jesus. Thank you that because Christ is who he is, we have hope to be who you're calling us to be. And so whether it be someday as a wife or a husband, or in the present as a child with our parents, or even as a student with a teacher, or a principal, or one day as an employee with a boss, whatever it may be, let us live in whatever station it is unto your glory, by your grace, and by your power. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.